12, verses 12 to 13. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you, and you can open it to page 902. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the word of the Lord. morning, everyone. Um, would you join me as we continue worship as we pray? Prepare our hearts, O Lord, that we may accept your word this morning and silence in us any voices but your own so that in hearing your word, we may understand, trust, and obey through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We've spent the last three weeks um, going through uh, an important section, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, highlighting the primacy of the Holy Spirit, that it's more important to understand the who, instead of being fixated on the what the Holy Spirit gives. These various gifts, be it edifying um, gifts or sign gifts that he has given um, to his people. We have uh, been kind of exposed to the diversity of the gifts by the Spirit to the people of God, and now that we have a understanding of the source of these gifts, and they're all from the same Spirit, Holy Spirit himself, we move to understand the function in the way these gifts are to be profitable for the body, the church. Um, And Apostle Paul uses this human body analogy to help us understand the diversity and the unity, the oneness of um, the body of Christ. So the, the diversity of the church is, it is God-ordained. Holy Spirit um, gives us the diverse gifts. And now, as a member of the body, our part is to accept um, the part that's been given. Because if we don't accept, if we're not thankful, if we don't trust the giver, then we become divided And instead of building up and edifying the very body that was meant to do, we destroy it, creating division. And sometimes it can lead us to spiritual pride. It's like, this person has this gift, that person doesn't. And in so doing, we devalue the giver who gives these gifts that he has in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, given. Or sometimes we find ourselves being jealous of others with more, quote-unquote, impressive gifts, as the Corinthian church was doing, and looking down on those who seem to have, quote-unquote, less important gifts. 
Apostle Paul doesn't necessarily praise diversity for diversity's sake. Rather, the difference in gifting among church members is divinely ordered diversity with the purpose of revealing the nature of God himself and building up his church for his glory. Now, when Apostle Paul uses this language, the analogy of body, it's been around as something that people are familiar. Paul, Apostle Paul's not unfamiliar to it. Neither are the people in Corinth as um, political communities have been using these metaphors. Plutarch and others back in ancient times used the language of the body to talk about harmony and mutual interdependence and mutual benefit using comparing eyes, ears, hands, feet of the body. But oftentimes it was used in a hierarchical way. So a typical stereotype roles where the limbs would represent the workers and the belly, the ruling class, encouraging the whole body to function its part. Um, some commentators talk about the, the fable of Menenius Agrippa uh, using a plebeian revolt in Rome and says, the stomach appeared to the other members of the body to be doing nothing but enjoy the food they put into it. So they agreed to starve it, only to find that they thereby enfeebled themselves. So um, this analogy is used to discourage the plebs to stop from their sedition and submit to the rulers, um, the patricians. And the rebellion does um, inevitably, uh, inevitably, it it does end up getting stopped, and um, the damage that's done um, is um, prevented or ended. So Unlike the way the, the, the people of the days are using the analogy of the body, Apostle Paul uses the body language in a different way. So in, in the Greco-Roman context, it was used to kind of keep the status quo, allow the, those in power to have position and power. But Paul flips it and says basically, in, in flipping upside down, calling, calls the strong who have who are more well-to-do typically, to give more honor and more respect to the weak instead of the way that it was typically utilized. When Apostle Paul goes back, I can't help but think of perhaps his earlier days as he uh, was persecuting the Christian church on his way to Damascus what happens? He encounters Jesus, and Jesus calls him before he was called Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul asks, who are you, Lord? And Jesus' response, as Paul is going out persecuting Jesus' church, his disciples, followers, Jesus' response is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So there's a clear connection here that Jesus reveals, Paul hears, and Paul continues to think of and eventually comes to recognize and utilize that persecuting believers, Christ's followers, was essentially persecuting Jesus himself. Paul uses this human body analogy previously in chapter 10, to illustrate the unity and the interrelationship of members within the church. 
And within this chapter up to verse 27, the term body is used somewhat like 16 times again to emphasize. And throughout Paul's letters to different churches, whether to the Romans or the Ephesians or Colossians, the body image, church as a body, is repeated again. Human body is an amazing, complex creation of God, yet it is unified. Human body has something like 206 bones with 639 muscles and six pounds of skin. Some of us more, a little less maybe. With ligaments, cartilages, veins, arteries, blood, fat, and more. And every time you hear a sound, even my voice, or when you take a step, we take a short breath as we're sitting down, you have hundreds of parts working to make that happen. Even the greatest engineers that we have still can't come anywhere close to repeating to that kind of complexity and unity in their engineering. Somebody hurt himself this morning and got a Band-Aid here at church. But, you know, we all get hurt once in a while. Some of us, we have a tendency of maybe hurting our foot, running into things. But, you know, if, you know think of the last time you kind of uh, stubbed your toes and you hurt yourself. And think about all the parts that are involved in responding to that little accident. Your whole body reacts. It's not just that little toe, because what? Your leg reacts, and your knee is raised, and your arms react, because you go down, you reach to touch it to see what it's like. Your mouth reacts as it cringes and maybe even yells out, ouch. And your, art, your, your eyes dart to look around what happened, what's around that, that hurt me. The body so seamlessly and organically worked together when something as minute as a toe stubbing happens. There's no individual decision. It's an entire whole unit of the body responding to that one little event. It is perhaps one of the most powerful images for the church that the Scripture provides. Scripture gives a lot of images and metaphors to help us understand what a church is supposed to be. But the body is a beautiful, complex, united image that we see. And if you ask a person to explain what church or a body, a church is supposed to be, they might have a difficult time. But if you give an example, say, hey, what part of a body do you think you might be within the church? Then people talk about, hey, maybe I think I'm a hand, I'm a foot, I'm a funny bone. Some of us think we are funny, but uh, I know I'm not, so I don't pretend to, but... Those are the kind of things that help us understand because it shows the complexity and the power of how to understand the church that God has called out. In verse 12, we begin by um, hearing that for just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So the Corinthian church are pretty consumed and focused in wanting to speak tongues, and they desire to do more spectacular things. Yet, you know, um, 
we know that's, that's not it. Because not everyone has the same gift. And not every spiritual experiences are of, from the, of, of God anyway. So watch out. And it's in this context that we are recognized that there is one body. This body image that um, Apostle Paul uses. And this body, as you think of a biology, has many parts. As with the body of Christ. And when you read this section... It's interesting because you, you hear verse 12 going, well, the body is a unit, um, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, but there are one body, so is with, you, you would expect actually with the church, not with Christ, because that's how the argument kind of logically follows. Yet, why does the Bible have the word Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, instead of the church? There's you know, again, we, we've heard it before, but Christ himself is said to be the body made up of many members. And it's the point of oneness with the church and Christ is the emphasis being made here. When Jesus was on earth, he was incarnate in a single human body. But after he died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, now sitting at the right hand of God, being our advocate and judge there, now we have a different incarnate body, his body, his church. Here, diverse, precious body that is a witness to the world right now. So if verse 12 shows us the the unity and the complexity of the body. Verse 13 actually shows us how this body is formed. So in verse 13, it reads, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greek, slaves are free, and all were made to drink one spirit. So the church is formed as believers are baptized by Christ with his Holy Spirit. It is by one Spirit, His Holy Spirit, that we are all baptized into one body. Look at the word one, look at the word all being repeated in these two short verses. You see, Spirit baptism is entirely the work of God, and it's kind of synonymous to salvation. So Spirit baptism essentially is about salvation, and we understand that when... Um, it's Christ who does the baptizing with the Holy Spirit, and it is he who gives us new life and places us into this body. Um, it is not possible to be a Christian and not be baptized by Christ with his Holy Spirit. Let me say this again. It is not possible for you to be a Christian and not be baptized by Christ with his Holy Spirit. One spirit baptism establishes his one church. There are no partial Christians, no partial members of Christ's body. All believers in Jesus Christ become full members of his body when they are saved. All. One. When we are born again, 
the Lord not only places us in his body, he, um, but Holy Spirit is placed in us. At salvation, we drink of one spirit. So there is this, these, these two verbs that we see, right? Um, bat- being baptized um, and, and, and drinking. And those are actually synonymous words kind of coupled here because essentially a person um, who does not have the Holy Spirit does not have eternal life because eternal life is a life of the Spirit. There are people in more recent church history because of the challenges in seeing people perhaps not being vibrant in their faith, um, maybe frustrated that they're not maturing enough, have come to um, teach this kind of concept of second working of grace or this second blessing, like uh, a filling of the Spirit like as, as a second thing to receive. Um, and in teaching such thing, people have spent time and energy seeking that next thing out instead of truly simply obeying the word of God that we have already received, instead of um, recognizing that God has given us everything, he has given us, given all believers his Holy Spirit, some people are still looking kind of wasting, striving after these um, second filling. And unfortunately, when we have an inadequate understanding of doctrine of salvation, it leads us to wrong doctrine of sanctification. Because when we trust in Christ, we are completely immersed into the Holy Spirit God has nothing more to put in us. His very self is in us, and that can't be exceeded. And at the end of the day, if there's anything that's lacking, it's not more of the Holy Spirit. The lacking part has to do with my lack of full obedience, my lack of full trust, full submission, not lack of salvation or His indwelling Spirit. The central point of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is that the baptism with one spirit makes church one body. So if there's more than one baptism, guess what? There wouldn't be just one church. And that goes against the whole argument Paul is trying to make. One church, one body, because of one baptism that's been given In verse 12, um, what was stated in verse 12 is being confirmed here, that through the baptism in the Spirit, all believers become members of Christ's body. The emphasis of oneness of those who are in Christ by this one Spirit, the same Spirit that gives the diversity of gifts for the edification of His church. And that's the distinguishing mark. Believers versus non-believers being put into the body 
or not being part of this body of Christ. If you are saved, then you have his spirit in you. You've been baptized by Christ's Holy Spirit, and you've been united with his body. But if you're not, you can be part of a physical church that's gathering, but not actually be part of Christ's body. I think we're familiar with the word baptized um, that we see in verse 13. This, they were all baptized. Um, this is a simple passive indicative referencing a definite past event. Um, it's something that was done to those who believe. They uh, were all baptized. Um, secular um, contemporary Greek sources uses the word baptized also to use like when um, ships were submerged, and they used the word to be baptized in that sense to show, you know, they were initiated into water as well as overwhelmed by water. So, you know, when you have a submerged ship, basically the entirety of the ship is going to be under. And um, with that expression of they were all baptized, we see in connection the, the language of we're all made to drink of one spirit. Both same verb tenses, um, they're both simple, passive, indicative, pointing to the past that has been happened to them. And interestingly, um, you know, when we see they were made to drink of one spirit here, um, this verb refers to people, animals, or plants also being provided with water for nourishment. It's kind of like um, what you would see in irrigation crop. So that verb is also used prior uh, when Apollos is, um, you know, watering the crops. But we see an image of this kind of a supersaturation of water supply so that it would grow. It's a beautiful picture. It's a very similar picture of being baptized in the Spirit, and they were made to drink of one Spirit. They were provided with this abundant supply. Um, and this is what happens when salvation, when God gives the gift of salvation to those who recognize, who calls out, as we saw in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is Lord. But this baptism into one body is actually, now remember, the, the, the tension here was with different gifts of the Spirit, but it wasn't just about gifts of the Spirit. Here we see um, Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. So we see a many-color diversity in the body of Christ, not just focusing on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but in the social, political, different groups that have come together to make up this local church in this busy port city of Corinth. Um, now, back in those days, there were these intense disputes between Jews and Gentiles. Jews did not, could not, you know, be with in the proximity of those who were Gentiles. That's why when the Jewish leaders come to, like, let's say, um, to make a case before uh, uh, Jesus, um, you know, he, they, they have to stay outside instead of going into um, Pilate's uh, place. And there's this kind of a sense of prerogative that the rich and the free had that made him look down on those who were poor or who were enslaved. And these kind of prejudices were, had no place. So here, um, you know, 
if these sort of people can come together into one body, then nothing should really divide the church. It's what we're getting. God doesn't distinguish between Greeks or Jews or free or slaves. To God, we're all just sinners who desperately need his saving work. But why is it that us sinners are so picky in wanting to have that one upmanship compared to someone else? We want to make a distinction. Deep down, we're still insecure. Do we truly trust in the full sufficiency of what Christ did? Why do we look down? Why do we want to feel a little better, at least comparatively, to someone else? The church has no place for that. When we look at this short two verses, you'll see the word one and all stressed. One occurs three times, all twice. And we see this spiritual solidarity, the unity that we are to have. Because we all have experienced the same one spirit and enter the same one body. Some people look at verse 13, the first part, um, to talk about and make a case for this post-conversion experience. And in so doing, undermines, as I said before, Paul's entire argument and emphasis that there are no second-class Christians because all have shared in the same spirit, have been put into the same body because of the same baptism, one baptism. I think for me, when I meditate and pray about this passage, one of the biggest challenge for me and for us in our generation, not any different actually than 2,000 years ago, is this idea of dependence. Um, we major in independence. I mean, we celebrate the day, we teach young people to become more independent, and even now, this there's this thing called FIRE, uh, and it stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. There's an emphasis in wanting to be independent and be fully kind of free to do whatever, whenever, without any kind of connection, responsibility, mutuality, and interdependence. It's not a Christian concept. It's not. It's not a biblical understanding of how we are to live spiritually with his covenant people. We encourage not to need others, and we don't want to be defined by others. And to be honest, I think dependence sounds kind of scary, and it feels weak. I mean, Willow came today, awesome, but you know, both Sung and Hannah will continue to pray and nurture so that Willow will become a little more independent because right now she relies 100% on mom and dad. We say we want community, but many times we enjoy our autonomy so much, we take such joy and pride in it that we're not willing to pay if it costs our full autonomy. Church, 
biblical church doesn't function as a collection of separate individuals. The Bible gives us this beautiful metaphor of a body that is vitally connected, that functions in this way. I think underneath this desire for autonomy and fear of interdependence is our fear of perhaps being dispensable. We don't want to be used and tossed aside. Perhaps we've experienced that. We want to fit in and we want to be accepted. And because of those fears, what, what do we do? You know, we view others as dispensable because our greatest fear is that we might be dispensable, disposable, and replaced with someone or something else. Brothers and sisters, as we examine our hearts and guard against this kind of tendency that our day and age really encourages, right? Are you the kind of person who have to keep telling yourself, I'm indispensable and that person is dispensable? Does that make you feel better? Or are you maybe on the flip side, you find yourself with these words, oh, I'm nothing, I am dispensable. But that person has that gift, they must be indispensable. Either way, we're not trusting the one who gives the gifts. And we don't trust in his sovereignty and his perfect plan, that this actually is his plan to give different people different gifts to build up his body. Church, the body of Christ, made up of members. Sometimes we can be so focused on our self-protection and self-care that we forget that fundamentally this life that we have to live is about mutual care, that we are to suffer with those who suffer and rejoice with those who rejoice and share in the suffering of Christ and others. That sharing is koinonia. Even if we falsely determine that we are dispensable, the beauty of being part of the body is that the head of the body declared that we are not dispensable. The most pre presentable part, the head, was willingly dishonored so that the least presentable parts, you and I, might receive honor. It is important that you and I understand that the church and Jesus Christ are not identical, but they are inseparable. Just as the bride and groom, just as foundation of a building and the building itself, and the head, the body. You might have heard these words. You may have said it yourself. You know, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in like organized churches. I like Jesus, but church, no thank you. People of God in the Bible have always been people of the covenant with God and his people. 
Faith has always been personal, but never private, always with a covenanted group of people. You know, Bible has a lot of metaphors for the church from, like I mentioned, the temple, a building, a flock, a vine, and body. But a, a, a temple has bricks, a flock has sheep, a vine has branches, and body has members. And we need to remember that when Christ saves us, he makes us a member of his body. And we can't live that out without an actual local body of Christ, a local church, where we make a covenant with one another, commit to one another, encourage each other, serve together. That's why when we do have our quarterly members meeting, we recite the covenant to remember that this isn't something just we walk in and walk out at a convenience But as a marriage is, as we see in the entirety of the Bible, the way God covenanted with his people and the way people of God covenant with God and others, we are here making the covenants as a body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, um, as a local church, local body, We are called to gather as we've been challenged. And praise God that we are gathering now and uh, many of us have returned. And we pray for the day when everyone can return and rejoice and serve and give and pray and serve one another, knowing that this is his body that he has brought us into and that we are to rejoice in what he has entrusted us and be the incarnate flesh on this earth as we continue to wait for his return because he will. Um, Our mutual obligation as members of the body, again, it is to love one another, to serve one another, encourage one another as we trust in the Lord and the Holy Spirit who is the giver of all these gifts. Would you join me as we pray?